Last week we saw, in the earlier portion of Revelation 18, John's critique, really a withering critique of Rome and Babylon. And it came in the context of a series of laments, really self-indulgent laments, over the collapse of Rome's luxury and wealth by the kings and the merchants and the whole industry of shipmasters and mariners. They were pictured, you'll recall, as sort of standing and watching and weeping as Babylon's vast wealth suddenly and quickly collapses. So our text this morning, which is Revelation 18, beginning of verse 20, 20 through 24, it briefly introduces a new theme, and then it returns to finalize this picture of Babylon's demise. So we'll look at the text under the four headings that are there on the back inside page of your bulletin. The command to rejoice, the millstone, never again, and the reasons. So first, the command to rejoice. So Revelation 18, verse 20. Now this this verse would have had a jarring effect on the reader of this chapter. For here... Lamentation. Remember, last week's text, just prior to this, is a series of lamentations. And it is now replaced by a call or a summons to celebration. Now, Jeremiah 51, which was the Old Testament lesson we just heard, in that chapter, the prophet is speaking of the coming destruction of Babylon. And he says there, Then the heavens and the earth and all that is in them shall sing for joy over Babylon. And so John picks this up. He draws heavily from Jeremiah in this passage. He picks this up and he applies it to the Babylon of his day. So, among the many lessons of Revelations, one is, we should be people who read the prophets and then through the prophets look for analogies or situations in our own day in which the word of the prophet applies, because that's what the Spirit is doing with John here. So he picks this up from Jeremiah 51, and he applies it to the Roman Babylon, and verse 20 is the actual command to rejoice. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. So Rome is collapsing in the vision, and yet... John's calling us to see the unseen, to see the invisible hand of providence, to have eyes that pierce through the surface of things to the inner mystery of things in the purpose of the transcendent God. That's another large purpose of the book of Revelation, to see things as they are in the risen Christ in whom, and we heard this in the call to worship, in whom you are hidden. You are raised and hidden and seated. So, here, the heavenly host, as well as the whole church, in heaven and on earth, are called, summoned, in accord with many passages in the Psalms and in the prophets, to rejoice at the coming of the kingdom, which will entail judgment on the enemies of God. We've seen this theme quite a bit in Revelation. All the way back in chapter 12, the church was described, 
In fact, it was described this way in chapter 11 and in a number of other places. You are described as those who dwell in heaven. But again, you can see that in the call to worship. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You've been raised with Christ. And when Christ appears in glory, you too shall appear in glory with him. You are a people who dwell in heaven. And the church in chapter 12 was described this way. And it was called to rejoice over the beginning, over over the inauguration of Christ's triumph, manifested in his ascension and his expulsion of the dark principalities and powers from the heavenly realms. And here the same people, the church, are called to rejoice in the consummation of Christ's victory. Now, John is going very slowly. I'm sure you've noticed this. Some of you are probably thinking, is this not the seventh sermon on the fall of Babylon? I don't think it is. But the actual rejoicing itself, the actual answering of this call will take place in chapter 19, which, Lord willing, we'll begin to look at next week. But this text is a call to worship. While the social-political situation around the church is unraveling. And we get the rationale for the call. The last part of verse 20. God has given judgment for you against her. Or he has judged her for the way she's treated you. This means God has given the judgment she gave you back to her. This is that eye-for-eye duplicate judgment we've seen throughout the book. Now, we often, it doesn't seem this way in history. There are long stretches. There are centuries. There may even be millennia where it appears God is, in fact, not doing this. Right? That he is not, in fact, repaying the civilizations that trample the saints or the unjust regimes. But he must do this. This, And this is why we must see beyond the surface as those who are risen and raised in Christ who will appear again in glory. Because if he doesn't do this, and if we're not oriented toward him doing this, then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we are the most pitiable of people. What you end up with without this orientation is a kind of civic religion that's moral and decent and culturally useful perhaps. But it is not the gospel of the risen and coming in Christ. It is nothing um, that is going to transfigure the, the world. And so here, finally, the verdict is rendered. God has given her the judgment that she gave you. And so the saints, who've often been depicted as being trampled by the beast in Babylon in this book, The saints are here depicted as spectators. They're in the courtroom. And they have been condemned in Rome's courtroom. And they're now witnessing the condemning verdict of Rome in God's courtroom. This goes along with the whole theme of the book that you are a witness. right? You've been subpoenaed. You give testimony in the earth. The earth for John, among other images, is one grand courtroom scene. 
And in this courtroom scene, the saints continually have judgments rendered against them that are unjust and that are unfair. And the rectification of this evil is perpetually deferred. Right? The, the book of Proverbs, a wonderful proverb. Uh, it, it, can, it can sum up human existence for many. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. There's a sort of heart sickness that we will have until this day. There's no getting around it. There's no compensating for it. There's no way to make it go away. And the scene here echoes the law from Deuteronomy 19. It's known as the law of malicious witness. It's a magnificent law in the Torah, where if you falsely accuse someone in court, the sentence that you sought from them was applied to you, was carried out on you. And thus the same people that Babylon has trampled are called now and summoned to rejoice in God's rendering judgment on Babylon. Again, again, this is not vindictiveness. This is not a vindictive, bloodthirsty revenge. It's rejoicing in the essential judgment and God's justice and the goodness of it. The church does not rejoice in Babylon's suffering as suffering, her suffering per se. We rejoice in the justice and the glory of God in answer of the prayers of the martyred witnesses who are now under the altar crying out for these moments. Our prayers are always joined to their prayers. Have you thought about that? There's no praying that we do that is not in and through Christ and the Spirit, taken up with their prayers, the prayers of the martyrs under the altar in heaven who are praying, how long, O Lord, how long? So that's the first point. The second point is the millstone. We heard this again from Jeremiah 51 this morning, where the prophet said, when you finish reading this book, tie a stone to it, cast it in the midst of the Euphrates, and say, thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more. Same imagery is used in Ezekiel 25 of the destruction of Tyre. And remember, Tyre is the economic power that John uses, the sea power, the trading power, as a background image for Roman Babylon's wealth acquired by trade. So again, John is not randomly picking up a millstone image here. He's borrowing from Jeremiah 51 and Ezekiel 25. And he picks it up in verse 21. A mighty angel takes up a stone like a great millstone, throws it into the sea, saying, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. This is what happened to Egypt at the Exodus. She was thrown like a stone into the sea. Not only to Egypt, but to Babylon and to Tyre and now Roman Babylon thrown down and found no more. This goes to a basic principle of our Lord's teaching in the Gospels. Jesus, you remember, said, whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, this is sweet and mild and gentle Jesus now, it would be better for that person to have a millstone tied around their neck 
and for them to be thrown into the sea. And Babylon has caused Jesus' little ones to shed their blood unjustly. And so Babylon must be thrown down. And that's what John is saying. And so the third point, never again. What we have here, we've had the call to worship, but we're back to a funeral dirge. Five parts, each of them ending in the words, never to be found again. It's how the merchants last week ended their weeping and lamenting over Babylon by saying, all of your goods, all of your delicacies, all of your splendors are lost. They're never to be found again. Now heaven joins that chorus. This irrevocable loss, this permanent loss is unfolded here. You can see it in verse 22. It begins there. So the text says the music or the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players, trumpeters, will never be heard in you again. The, the silencing of music is a curse. Right? This, this signals the loss of joy. The loss of the things in a city like Rome that would make life pleasant and pleasurable. So the rich patrons of Rome, the patrons of the arts, are going to have their cultural luxuries stripped away. And then... The text continues, and a craftsman of any craft will never be found in you again. There's a lot of irony in this little list. The faithful Christians have been effectively removed from the marketplace because the various trade guilds will not let them practice their crafts without fornicating with the harlot. And thus craftsmen of any craft will be removed from Babylon. And this signals the end of all economic activity. Right? The collapse of the Roman Empire means the end of her economic activity. And again, the prophet Jeremiah, speaking of Israel's judgment at the hands of ancient Babylon, he anticipates the next three desolations in this text. Jeremiah says this. This is from Jeremiah now, but it sounds just like John. He says, Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride and the grinding of millstones and the light of the lamp. You can see that John picks this right up almost verbatim. And he says, John says, the sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. Finally, this means for Rome the loss of the ability to make a living, to get daily bread. Again, note the irony. Babylon is is a millstone thrown into the sea, and as such, she has no more family mills. All the means of making a living are gone. This is not unusual or something surprising, because total states require total allegiance, almost always for what they deceptively call the common good. And in so doing, they end up destroying the common life of the civilization. Witness Venezuela. You know, another thing to see here is that cultures are downstream from cult. Meaning, what we worship shapes the broader kinds of cultures we create. Right? And since Rome and Babylon had come to worship demons, her culture ends up being eating itself and being destroyed. 
If you worship the state, it turns out you eventually destroy the civilization that you are deifying. And so John is moving here in Revelation in a sort of prophetic political critique, saying that because of your idolatry, you're going to lose all of the fine and bright and beautiful cultural things that you so cherish. Right? The West, in our era, is engaged in a somewhat new and daring speculative adventure. Right? The bet of the secular West is we can keep all the cultural goods without the cult. We can keep the music, we can keep the art, we can keep the food, we can keep political liberty, we can keep a basic sense of order, we can just cut the heart of the Christian civilization and history of the West out, and we'll be fine without it. Now, I don't think it's going real well, and I don't think it's going to end well, but that's the gambit. It's often unspoken or unstated, but that is the gambit that we are in. So in verse 23, the light of a lamp will never shine in you again. No mills by day, no lamps by night. You've got this, you know, luminous city of Rome. And John says it's going to go dark forever. And then the last thing in the list, I think it's last because it's as if John's saying this is the most tragic loss of the joys of civilization. The voice of the bridegroom and the bride will never be heard in you again. No weddings. And thus no children. And thus no posterity. And thus no future. Of course, the warnings are not heeded. John's just one crazy guy in a prison. Right? Just like in the days of Noah, people will marry and be given marriage right up until the days Babylon collapses. And this brings us to the fourth and final point here, the reasons. The end of verse 23 says, Your merchants were the world's great men, right? great wealthy trading partners. And John sees all this wealth, as we saw last week, as a kind of economic idolatry. For John, it's been achieved by exploitation and by greed. And also by bloodshed. He says here, by your magic spell or by your sorcery. All the nations were led astray and deceived. It's interesting. The nations, all the client states, all the nations who went along with Babylon, they were seduced, John says. They were deceived into it. No one wakes up and says, you know, I think I'll throw my lot in with this satanic principality and power. There's a long process of seduction. Right, about how good the state is and how wonderful her military might is and, and how prosperous her economic goods are. So there's a, you know, when I was younger, I used to think, I'm not so sure we could really, I could see on the horizon, I could conceptualize a sort of antichrist or how the whole world could be led astray. The older I get, the more open I am to the idea. Like I've seen enough mass madness in my own life to think, Yeah, I think it's probably possible for huge swaths of humanity to all believe crazy stuff. It seems to me we've all sort of decided to do that just in the last 10 years. Ordinary people who would never affirm certain things now affirm things that they would have never thought of affirming 10 years ago. 
and do it by the tens of millions and do it across the whole globe. So, you know, this can seem like some sort of big apocalyptic monster from science fiction. But there are seductive forces that, and and because of the nature of human life and culture, because of the reality of principalities and powers, these things sweep people along with them in a kind of irrational way. People don't think about this. They're just caught up and they're seduced. They believe the propaganda. And eventually here they traded their bread for security. They traded freedom for bread and security. And John, now notice this. This is very prophetic. I mean, John is a prophet. He's an apostle, it's true, but he's also functioning like a prophet in this book. He calls this whole lauded Roman system sorcery. In other words, it's a form of political, economic witchcraft. I mean, you cannot get a gig at a Washington think tank if you talk like that. Nobody hires people. Yes, I'm an expert in European Mediterranean European studies. I think the whole system is witchcraft. So finally, there's a third, and this is a climactic reason, comes in verse 24. Babylon falls because in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who have been slain or killed in the earth. So this kind of state-run Tyranny is sorcery, and this type of sorcery always requires blood. Because there will be prophets. You are called to be prophets in this sense. The whole church is viewed as a company of prophets in Revelation chapter 11. And there will be people who stand on the apostolic faith, and those people will resist. There will be faithful witnesses, and faithful witnesses in these types of systems will have to be jailed and eventually killed. Again, Jeremiah 51, speaking of ancient Babylon, says this, Babylon must fall for the slain of Israel, just as for Babylon hath fallen the slain of all the earth. Again, John is updating Jeremiah for his own day. I want to note a couple things here in verse 24. First, again, there's another biting piece of prophetic irony in this final reason, this final reason for Babylon's fall. Babylon will be thrown down, verse 21 told us, and found, found no more. In her, there will not be found music. There will not be found craftsmen. There will not be found mills. There will not be found lamps or weddings. None of these things will be found in Babylon because in her was found the blood of prophets and saints. God does not forget his witnesses. He doesn't lose track of them. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. It may be lost to everyone else. It's found to God. And finding this blood means that Babylon herself will be found no more. Right? What does Genesis 9 say? Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood will be shed. God will have human instruments to shed the blood of Babylon. That's why, that's why her fall was also depicted as a civil war earlier. 
Finally, I want to make another important point here that could be easily overlooked. We should note that Rome did not just exploit and kill Christians. There are not a lot of regimes that just kill Christians. They kill anyone and everyone who opposes the tyranny. They may kill mostly Christians. But Rome, it says, in her was found the blood of all who were slain on earth. Remember what I just read from from Jeremiah. He said that Babylon falls not only for slaying Israelites, but because for Babylon have fallen all the slain of the earth. So Rome, too, has trampled and killed many innocent human beings, not just Christians, in the pursuit of her power and her wealth. And it's important, I think, to see that the apostle, inspired by the Spirit, has not forgotten them. Christianity is pure humanism. It seeks the good of all the image bearers of God. Yes, you are to do good, especially to the household of the, of the saints, but nevertheless to all people who bear God's image. And here the prophet, yes, his central concern is the church, but he has not forgotten those made in God's image who've been trampled by this thing. And he remembers them, and he says, our God remembers them. So it turns out that having a passionate concern for the church, the body of Christ, is the way the richest and fullest way to be concerned for every last human individual everywhere in the earth. For the body of Christ is the body of the risen Christ and the ascended Christ, who's the head and ruler of all things and whose presence fills all things in every way. So let me conclude briefly. I'm going to make two remarks here, both of which you've heard before and both of which we'll probably hear again. Um, But the saints, the key thing to see here is that the saints, unlike the kings and the merchants, the saints rejoice when Babylon falls. Now, to fail to do this is to fail to love the justice of God. But it's more than that. It's to despise the blood of our brothers and sisters and the blood of all human beings who've been trampled by all bestial empires. Right? And the earth is saturated with the blood of those who've been the victims of this kind of state-sponsored violence and economic exploitation. And so we must, it is a moral obligation, this is a call to worship. Right? You, cannot, you cannot respond to this call and say, I find this distasteful. Because the Lord himself summons you to this kind of robust, real-world, concrete worship in this battered place. So, we have to yearn for these systems, past and present, to be judged. And I've mentioned before, to not do this is to give up on the notion of moral order in the universe. There are among us, and I understand the sympathy, the sentiment, people who feel like, well, this is just not nice. But the problem is, if we do that, and we fail to rejoice, we are in fact standing with the oppressors, 
So that's the first point. Don't shrink back from the call to rejoice. Again, you're not being vindictive or being bloodthirsty. You're rejoicing in a just judgment. Second, we rejoice in the fall of Babylon because she must fall. And this is a big part of the way John structures his book. She must fall to make room for the holy city of God. Right? We're just on the way to that city. And this coming city, and we've already seen this. Right? This is a city which does, in fact, have harpists and musicians. Forever hymning the Lord God Almighty in the Lamb. It's a city which, as we will see, will see the glory and the craftsmanship. All the just economic activity of the nation stream into its gates. It's a city whose cult, whose public worship, heals the culture of human civilizations. It's a city which needs no mills because its inhabitants neither hunger nor thirst anymore, but they feed on the bread of life. It needs no lamp because the Lord God and the Lamb are its everlasting light, John is going to tell us. He's anticipating all of that here in this dirge over Babylon. And that city in herself, of which you are a part, right, in all of her radiant international diversity, that city is a bride, forever raising her voice and responding to the bridegroom in a consummated marriage. And so, to rejoice then in the falling of Babylon is nothing more than delighting in the church's orientation, the church is receiving an answer to her perpetual prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. At the very heart of the church's praying life, we could paraphrase it this way. Let the marriage supper of the Lamb come. That's what the church prays. And that prayer generates or should generate this perpetual hopeful cry in the spirit, which was an ancient prayer of the first century Christians. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.